do 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 music goes here Brought to you by iLand, this is the Cloud Bytes Podcast, where we brought together a panel of opinionated cloud customers, providers, and analysts to discuss topics related to how clouds are built, marketed, and consumed. Everyone has different needs in the cloud, so we'll debate the topic at hand and at the very least, agree to disagree. Our goal is to provide good sound bites about how to manage your bytes in the cloud, and sometimes the best conclusion may simply be that the cloud bites. Today, this episode is about the compatibility of the cloud with an on-premises infrastructure. I'm Brian Knudsen, Cloud Technologist for iLand, and I will be acting as our moderator for today's discussion. This episode's panel includes very thoughtful IT experts with a wide range of experiences building both on-premises and cloud infrastructures. Let's start with having our panelists quickly introducing themselves and their current role in a soundbite of their initial thoughts about what is important about being compatible in the cloud. Hello, everybody. My name is Chris Williams. I am an enterprise cloud architect working for GreenPages Technology Solutions. I fashion myself as sometimes being a cloud therapist because a lot of this is hand-holding and explaining to everybody that, you know, we're all in the same boat and we're going to get through this together. I also am a VMware vExpert and an AWS hero. So I have a uh, unique perspective on being able to, you know, know what it takes to move from an on-premises environment up to the cloud. I also blog at mistwire.com, and I do the V Brownback podcast on Wednesday nights, and I run the AWS Portsmouth user group in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Hi, um, my name is Gina Rosenthal, otherwise known as Gina Minks sometimes. It's a long story. I have just changed, <laughs> I've just changed jobs. I have gone out on my own. I've founded a new company called Digital Sunshine Solutions, where I'm helping do a lot of the things I did at VMware and EMC and Dell and the Federation, just kind of helping get products out there. I'm also looking forward to helping companies get back to real community and using community as the basis to improve upon their products and get very tight with their customers. And also looking forward to tackling the problem in the U.S. of digital literacy and how that threatens our democracy. So you can find me online at at Twitter, I'm G-Minks. You can find me at ginaminks.com and digitalsunshinesolutions.com. Hello, my name is Tim Antonowitz. I'm a enterprise architect at HPE, focusing on SimpliVity and hybrid IT. I'm also a VCDX number 112. And I basically, I go around preaching the good word about SimpliVity to all of HPE's customers and prospects. Thanks, everybody. Um, we will have on the show notes everybody's contact information, so feel free to go look for that if you want to follow up with any of the panelists later on. But thank you all for joining me. So introducing a cloud platform as part of a complete IT infrastructure, whether that be a cloud-native application, running production virtual machines on a hyperscaler, or utilizing a VMware-based disaster recovery as a service, requires some investigation into how it might work with the current infrastructure, or how policies and procedures will need to change to account for different operating models. When it comes down to it, some cloud offerings may have greater impact on the business of managing IT. Chris, as customers consider architecting and managing cloud-based applications and data availability, what do they need to know about availability that may be different between a VMware-based cloud platform and a hyperscaler cloud platform like AWS, Google Cloud, Azure? 
there's a lot to unpack in that one simple question. So <laughs> I'll try to keep this into cloud bytes, as it were. So when you're looking at the environment on-premises, you understand how your environment is spooled out. You've got your data centers, you've got your design. And if you have designed your local environment correctly, you have accounted for DR in a number of fashions. You've got you know multiple whips going to your cabinets. You've got vMotion enabled on VMware. You've got, you know, hosts set up in different stacks so that, you know, in the event that something goes down, you have some form of DR. When you're looking at it in the cloud, those aspects, specifically the hardware aspects, are kind of taken care of. You have to understand that vMotion doesn't exist in a certain capacity in certain clouds. So you've got to weigh the pros and cons of, do I re-engineer my application so that it understands inherently its own DR paradigm, or do I want to rely more on the hardware? If you do, then you would pick one cloud over the other. And from an availability perspective, the on-prem customer doesn't have to worry about the hardware anymore. That is literally the job of the cloud, is to take care of your hardware needs for you. You don't do the patching of the systems. You don't do the load balancing firmware updates. You don't have to patch the firewalls, et cetera, et cetera. However, you do have to concentrate much more closely and rigorously to your architectural design of your software stack, of your applications, of where you're writing data to and how you're getting data to and from your application and your web front ends. So there's a lot of, you still have to think very closely and very carefully at it. You just have to manage it and architect it differently, particularly if you're going into like, you know, some of the DR aspects that you were talking about. You still have to know what your RPOs, RTOs, and your SLAs are. And we can get into the naming of those acronyms if you want to as well. <laughs> so um, there, there's much more than I can unpack in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I agree that availability is very important. Whether you're on-premises or in a cloud, you need to understand availability from a risk standpoint. You need to identify the risks, whether they are are physical from your infrastructure, if you're running your own stuff on-premises and such, and just identify those and figure out what your risks are. And then if you decide you want to move to a cloud provider or something, identify with those risks. And Chris identified some of those more on the software stack. And it's true, you don't have to worry about hardware, but you still have to identify what those are and the impact of those. Some customers I talk to are leery about the cloud because they're worried about big outages or, or something else. It's a risk. You identify those risks and you, you deal with them. But the important thing to hear is literally to go through one by one with a customer and talk about the risks and see what it's going to take to mitigate those. Sometimes it comes down to cost benefit. You, you just identify a risk and say, I don't think that's going to happen. And I'm willing to take a chance that if that happens, you go with it. But sometimes in order to mitigate the risk, the cost of you know putting workloads into different clouds, if you're that paranoid and working it that way, it can be done. It just might cost way more than what you need. So it's all about risk and identifying and figuring out where the customer wants to go from one side to the other. I also think we have to, one, one place that especially us as operations-minded people a lot of times we forget that all of this architecting and determining where the risks are is dependent on what the application is. So, I mean, that's something I just came out of the BU that makes vSphere at VMware and Project Pacific um, and kind of looking at these real cloud-based applications, these new types of applications, not the ones we're used to, but the ones that developers want to run, containerized applications. And they actually have a very different set of requirements. So I think that's part of it too. You know, what actually is the purpose of the application? How 
ubiquitous does it need to be? Does it need to be on-prem and in the cloud? And which cloud? And does it need to go back and forth? And does it vary by region? And and all of those are new questions that I don't think we've asked a lot. And I'd even put forward that for traditional operations people, not our traditional colleagues that may be serving in an SRE role or a platform engineer role now, I think there's some catching up to do with, you know, this is the new type of application. This is container-based. This is what I expect. This is what I expect. This is what my new type of SLA is. It's all very different. So we need to understand what that means in the cloud and what it means on-prem at this point as well. Yeah, and all highly dependent on what the business really needs out of it. When you say the, you know, what do you need? That's a business decision. IT shouldn't be making those types of decisions in a vacuum. Right. But they should be very opinionated by protecting them because I think that's what Tim was talking about with the risk. So like the business can dream up all sorts of stuff, especially if they're prodded on by development. <laughs> like, of course, we can make it do that. But is that risk something the business is willing to swallow? Yeah, it's definitely a negotiation between the business, just like we and IT have to negotiate with our downstream providers. So let's say I'm going to take it back to a more technical level. Gino, some cloud providers only offer the t-shirt sizing of VMs. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's just a thing, right? We've already talked about that, you know, in the cloud, you're not going to manage the hardware and you're not going to manage the patching and all of that stuff. You're consuming the hardware as a service in some way, shape or form. So the reason that they offer this t-shirt sizings is so that they can have some sort of pricing for you. So you can get a small VM, you can get a VM that has acceleration hardware in it. You can get a large VM, you can like all these different things cost money. And we know that because we do this on prep. We know that it costs more, you know, for different types of VMs and to maintain an SLA and the cloud providers looking at how do we do this on this super large scale for any type of customer and make it really, really easy to consume. And continue to grow that consumption. That's what they're caring about. So of course, they're going to give us t-shirt sizings, but that's what you get when you're not wanting to deal with the hardware. You give up control of that. So I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing. It just is a thing that if that's the choice you go with to have your infrastructure reside on a cloud environment, you're giving up control to them to manage all of the hardware and the patching and the underlying hypervisor and everything else. So that's what they have to do to be profitable and to provide it for you in a timely manner. So it's just a thing. Yes, <laughs> definitely is a thing. And, you know, a bit of a leading question. I won't deny that. You gave me a leading question. Are you kidding me? <laughs> it, it was all about a discussion about, you know, when is it good? When is it bad? Because it's a little bit of both. Right. And I think that goes back to just deciding and understanding how those applications work. It's easier for developers because I think the cloud providers have intentionally made the on-ramp super duper easy for them. The developers don't have to mess with ops anymore. They can just go to the cloud and they can get whatever size of a VM that will approximately fit their application and they will build to those sizes and to those SLAs. And that's what actually a platform engineer or SRE's job is is to make sure that whatever is being built in that containerized application is able to be supported by a platform that the ops person can't go in and touch and control and push on and do all of that. So um, I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, with Project Pacific and I guess other things on-prem, is that something that can happen on on on-premises now? 
Can operations people now use vSphere in the same type of way that they've been able to do these t-shirt sizing in the cloud? T-shirt sizes, I don't think that's a bad thing. It follows the old 80-20 rule. I want to be able to cover 80% of the market, and that's what it works. You get an extra small, a small, medium, large, extra large, depending on what your fit is or something. You're going to fit almost everybody, but there's going to be certain workloads that just don't fit. Either very small ephemeral VMs just don't work that well, or you turn around and you've got very large capacity workloads that don't fit in that extra large either. So you're going to sacrifice some workloads out of the t-shirt, but you're going to cover most of them. And ideally, a provider that wants to be more proactive is going to offer the t-shirts and then have an option to customize some sort of workload if possible. But if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. You're hoping to cover you know, 80% of the customers and of them, 80% of their workloads, which should be satisfactory. And will they fit other things into that? Maybe, maybe not. Sometimes a customer is going to have a workload that just doesn't fit the t-shirts and you're not going to be a good candidate for that opportunity. But based on the old 80-20 rule, you're going to get most of the workloads and most of the customers are going to fit in what you can offer. All right. So both Gina and Tim are wrong. Uh, No, I'm kidding. (laughs) So t-shirt sizes are unabashedly and unashamedly a good thing. And I'm saying that for several reasons. So let's break it down into a couple of different things. You've got the IT perspective. You've got the dev perspective. You've got the cloud company themselves perspective. You've got the architect's perspective. And then you have the considerations of migrations. And then you also have bare metal. So let's take these apart. (laughs) So from the IT perspective, people that are moving, that are creating things in the cloud, love the t-shirt sizes. There's no overhead of the software developer coming back and saying, oh, well, I really need just a couple more CPUs. Okay, we can move you to the next size up if you got the paycheck for it. Oh, well, no, I guess I'll have to go back and, and rework the code to make it more efficient. Okay, let's work for the IT person. You flip over to the development side, they have guardrails now. They have bumpers in which they have to make their workload work. They have, you know, a small, a medium, a large, or a bare metal, or, I mean, and let's be clear, the t-shirt sizes in cloud are enormous. You can fit a gnat and you can fit an elephant. There are so many different sizes of t-shirts that you're probably going to fall into one of them. If you have some monstrous workload that is so custom cornered that nothing within the cloud fits you, you're probably designing it wrong. You're misusing and abusing your hardware to the point that nothing would fit. Okay, I think you're wrong about that. And here's why. (laughs) I think, you know, I think there's a danger in saying, you know, that these t-shirt charges are great. If you've got an idea that's beyond it, then you just shouldn't be in the cloud. I think that's kind of the struggle fest around it. If if somebody comes up with a brand new innovative way of doing things and there isn't a t-shirt size for them, then that's probably a place where it is bad. And the cloud companies can't keep up with them. The cloud companies are in this to make money. So they have the average configurations, even if there's lots of them for the majority of people. But what happens if I'm a super innovative company and I've got this crazy new development idea that's going to change everything? You know, I just don't get to use the cloud at all. That's kind of what you said. Well, I didn't mean to imply that if you have a crazy corner case that the cloud is not for you. When I'm thinking about, you know, 
the amazingly giant scale things like Netflix or Facebook. I mean, those guys save money by moving out of particular clouds. And, you know, they can save, you know, millions and billions of dollars by shaving a fraction of a byte off of one packet, you know, that traverses the network. The kinds of customers that I deal with, the SMBs and the enterprises and stuff like that, they don't have systems that are like, well, with the exception of the AS400s, they don't have systems that preclude them from being in the cloud. What they do is they have workloads that are so egregiously misconfigured that no amount of NICs or no amount of backend storage can, can possibly keep up with it. But the solution for that isn't to throw your hands up and say, no, you can never get into the cloud. The solution to that is to work with the development teams to say, okay, what is it that you're trying to do? And do you really need to load your five terabyte temp database to the front end every single query? No? Okay, then let's walk that back a little bit and do something a little bit more reasonable and more cost efficient for you. That's the kind of thing that I'm getting at when I'm saying that the developers need to think about things a little bit differently. Does that make sense? So that makes sense. But that also, because I'm totally looking at this from a cloud economics kind of thing, because the cloud companies are not these altruistic, come get a t-shirt that will fit you and we'll take care of you and make it run better. They're in it to make a lot of money. They're probably happy as they can be when people do misconfigure and say, we'll give you a whole platform of wrong size t-shirts. Take them all and give us all your money. That's actually not true. By and large, Azure, Google, and AWS, especially AWS, and it sounds counterintuitive, but there's a long game in this. They encourage everybody to spend as little as possible. Within AWS, they have these things called the well-architected reviews, and I do tons of them. One of the five pillars of an AWS well-architected review is cost optimization. What can the customer do to spend less money with AWS? Now, the thinking behind that is, They're in this for the long game. If they're saving money now and the customer understands that AWS has their wallet's interest at heart, they're going to continue moving more and more workloads up there. So it's not that they're just trying to grab as much money as humanly possible right from the get-go because customers will go into, you know, they will go into sticker shock if they see that first bill and they've, you know, misconfigured stuff. That's why they have reserved instances. That's why they have the cost optimization pillar. That's why they have the cost recommendation engine that tells people, hey, you're spending way too much money in here. Let's get this right-sized for you. So they don't want to do that. But again, it's a long game for them. So back to the concept of the t-shirt sizes, the one place where it kind of stumbles a little bit is when you're talking about a lift and shift migration. I do a lot of these for our customers and and we just take their stuff and pick the closest t-shirt size that we can up in the cloud for the systems that they'll take like, you know, a four core system with eight gigs of RAM and and move it up. And that's a particular t-shirt size. But what if they have a system that's 32 cores and two gigs of RAM? There is no t-shirt size that is commensurate to that. But then again, that goes back to my original statement of if you've got 32 cores and two gigs of RAM, what the heck are you doing with that thing? Is that something that you can split into, you know, a bunch of T2s or a bunch of, you know, smaller t-shirt sizes that could facilitate your system better than having this wonky corner case? But if you do have to have that wonky corner case, then there's also the bare metal options up there as well. You can get dedicated hosts that you can have, you know, whatever you want to run on them. You're still, you know, pinned by the size of that one dedicated host, but those things are massive in size anyway. So you could squeeze a ton of stuff in there. So I want to play off of kind of the topic that you're touching on, which is the migration aspect of things, because when we're in a brownfield situation, which most customers are going to be, they're going to have to make that migration. Or if they're using the cloud for DR, they're going to have to make that migration. When it comes to that, 
Tim, I'm interested from your experience, how much of an impact that has on customers during the migration, um, particularly when a conversion is required, not just having to refit it into a new container size, but into a whole new format. Should this factor into their choice between a given infrastructure or DR as a service provider? That can definitely impact things. Compatibility is really important when you consider migrations. If you're moving workloads, you know, just as a migration, it's not as critical because you can take the time to rebuild a workload as it's moving up because that's part of the project you're involved with. If you're talking about disaster recovery and business continuity, it becomes a very different discussion because you want to have you know, in the case of a DR or recovery or such, you want to be able to get that workload up as fast as possible with the least amount of data loss when that happens. So you want to make sure that the form factor, so to speak, whether it's a vSphere VM or such, is that form factor is available as quick as possible in your cloud provider's infrastructure so you can turn it on as quick as possible, whether it's a an SRM or, or some other sort of automated recovery. Time is of the essence when you're in a recovery. And if you have to refactor something along the way or convert it, that takes time away from your business being up. So if your provider can provide a similar form factor, whether it's a vSphere infrastructure or whatever in there, and you can keep that data up and reliable when you cut over for any sort of disaster, the time it takes to recover is less. So your recovery points can be as good as possible, but the recovery time is really critical in that disaster. So compatibility is very important when you're considering DR. If your application is cloud native to begin with, whether it's on-premises or in the cloud or whatever, that means that you're already in the same form factor. So there is no significant need for a conversion. But that compatibility is very important when you consider all those factors. And then from a provider standpoint, this could be a differentiator from a business standpoint. If you can provide that vSphere-like environment, then you have that ability to attract more customers that you can simply say, we've got vSphere hosts up here. You can spin up your VMs and move right along. That works perfect. If you're only providing an AWS infrastructure that or something else that is not compatible, you have to take other factors into consideration. doesn't mean you can't do it, but it just might make that DR plan a little bit more complex. Yeah, and that complexity is a scary thing sometimes when it comes to DR if you don't fully understand what it's going to take. If you understand the complexity and can manage to it, it may not be as scary, but it's important to consider that. Yeah. When you're dealing with products like Site Recovery Manager or Zerto or things like that, the technical side of things to make it happen are a lot easier than the actual design for a comprehensive DR plan and all of the dependencies you need to factor in. The devil is in the details when it comes to DR. Measure three times, cut once. Yeah. I'm actually in the process of doing this with a customer right now. And Tim is exactly right. The technical aspects of it are much easier Easier? No. Much different than figuring out the process, the failover run book, the steps for stand-up on the other side, and then the business ramifications, too. The best way to do that, I think, is to you know pick it apart workload by workload, application by application. But even then, those things are so tightly integrated with each other, it can be an onerous beast to tackle. Do you guys think some of that's getting better? Because there's so much that has improved, especially if you look at all of the things that VMware has done to, you know, establish a presence in the cloud and things they do with cloud foundation. So do you think that's getting better 
as technology improves, just out of curiosity? So I'm particularly thinking mm-hmm. about VMC right now, VMware and AWS. If you stick with VMware and if you stick with you know the flavor that you know, then yes, there are certain things that can make it easier. If you are trying to, you know, switch hypervisors, if you're going from a VMDK to an EC2 instance, then things can get more difficult on the front end. And there's a trade-off on both aspects of that. You know, if you're going from VMware to VMware, then things are going to be easier, but it's going to be more expensive. If you're going from VMware to EC2 or Azure or GCP, then there are varying degrees of difficulty that are injected into that because of the change in architecture. But generally, it's going to be cheaper. You'll never hear me say it's cheaper to run things in cloud. That's not true. But what I'm saying is that from an overhead and knowledge perspective of what you need to know in the cloud, it can be easier and potentially financially easier as well if you refactor along with your migration. So that's a, that's a qualified <laughs> yes, Gina. <laughs> yeah, and the knowledge aspect of things you touched on, that's actually something we talked about in the other compatible episode that we did, is how much that knowledge can really matter. So I'm, I'm glad you brought that up again here. Oh, it's huge. A lot of what I do when I'm moving customers into the cloud or, or setting up a hybrid environment or anything that's touching the cloud is education. I spend a lot of the first week of my time with a customer just teaching them about the cloud. I spend a lot of my time just teaching them, okay, this was a VMDK on-prem. This is what this means in your cloud of choice, you know, a, a virtual machine or an EC2 instance or what have you. And then, you know, explaining what a VCP is or what a VMNet is. There's a lot of all of the widgets are the same, but they, like, for example, within a VPC, which is AWS, excuse me, VCP, <laughs> you, you, you can't change your IP addresses very easily for the VPC itself. But within uh, Azure, you can. So depending upon what aspects of malleability and manageability are important to you, that could preclude which cloud choice you make. And that's why sometimes, and Tim was speaking about this at the very beginning, why sometimes people pick both. While they'll set up a hybrid solution that involves multiple clouds and have a multi-cloud solution with like a common transit hub or something. Yeah, yeah, I think it's in everyone's, If going back to like the companies, even the vendors, I think it's in everyone's best interest to work together. And there's things that are happening now that, you know, would have been really impossible to happen five years ago. I mean, when I was still working at EMC, for example, they were still saying AWS was the devil and look how quickly that's changed. And so now I think you've got the cloud provider seeing that it's really important to work with the on-premises vendors and you're seeing the on-prem vendors realizing that customers are going to the cloud. It's happening. So how does everybody get a little piece of that pie? So you're seeing people starting to do lots of co-development and figure out how to make things easier to truly you know, be able to choose what's the best for you. Yeah, definitely. Let's go ahead and wrap up. Great conversation. The thing I hate the most is having to cut it short. So, <laughs> But we want people to actually listen to this. So to kind of summarize, it's important to understand why and how redundancy is used on premises so that you can ensure that that same level of redundancy exists in the cloud because it's done differently. There's different ways to think about it since you're not having to deal with the hardware And since you're not dealing with the hardware, sometimes compromise is necessary. The business may have to look at their SLAs a little bit differently. And IT's job is to help them understand that and what's possible, what's not possible. And, you know, sometimes the providers are going to limit what you can do in order to make their ability to provide and customers the availability they need will restrict what they're able to do. That's where we oftentimes get the t-shirt sizing to, to make it easier for them to capacity plan. There sometimes are good side effects to that. We can have 
more efficient systems that are forced to avoid a higher cost, forced into a smaller size and therefore more efficient. But it's important to properly architect when you move things into the cloud and spending time to consider that um, if you need to refactor things during a migration, it's not a big deal. But if you're going to have to do that during DR, a lot of planning needs to go into that. And ultimately, when it comes down to it, you also need to consider what it's going to take to manage it all and making sure that that's going to fit into what you're doing and possibly adjust if necessary. So with that, let's finish off this episode. Thank you, Chris, Gina, and Tim for the great conversation. Also, thanks to Island for making this podcast possible. Please check out the episode notes, panelist contact information, further information about this topic, and all the other episodes at cloudbytes.cloud. You can also find episodes on your favorite podcast apps. And if you found this useful, we'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and colleagues and rating us on those podcast platforms. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Cloud Bytes podcast. I can't hear him. Did we lose Chris? He was on a roll too. He I was. don't think he was right. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>